I want to invite you to find Revelation chapter 3 in your Bibles. We've been studying a different passage in Revelation each Sunday of Advent for the last couple of years, including this year. And we've been trying to listen to Jesus with fresh ears and make sure this Christmas we don't get all swept up into all the trappings of Christmas and forget Jesus, but listen to him and give him good gifts. We want to give Jesus the things that he desires as his church this Christmas. So do a little mental calculating. How much time have you put in to brainstorming, researching, shopping for, purchasing, returning, purchasing again, wrapping gifts for people this Christmas, do you think? Just kind of think back whenever you got started. Some of you started six months ago. Some of you started last week and are panicking. We, we put a great deal of energy into that often at Christmas time, and that's good. It's good to give good gifts to people. That's generous. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But as Christians, we want to remember Jesus, and we want to give him our best efforts too. We don't want to exhaust ourselves in those aspects of Christmas and only bring to Jesus our leftover energies. We want him to be first and foremost and primary. And so that's what we're doing this Advent season. And each Sunday we've read one of these letters to a church that was going to be the original recipients of the book of Revelation. And today we're going to see something else that Jesus likes, something that he wants from his churches. And it's really simple and it's singular. It's just one thing this week. Jesus wants faithfulness from his churches. He wants his churches to be faithful to him. Simple, everyday faithfulness pleases our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, very much. So we'll read this letter to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Before we read his address to this church on this Christmas Sunday, let's first remember who it is we're talking about, who it is we're listening to there in verse 7. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So again, let's let God's Word recalibrate our image of Jesus. Yes, He was born humble in a manger, but that's not His state today. Today we know Him as the Holy One. He is set apart from all others. He is sacred. There is no one like him. He is completely pure of sin. He is pure of any moral blemish. And he stands apart from any other figure of all human history. He is the Holy One. He is the True One, which means he is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is absolutely 100% reliable, dependable, When he says it, you can build your life upon it. It is completely true and unchanging. Jesus is the Holy One, and he is the true one. And he says here, he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now that to us doesn't immediately make sense probably, but to the original recipients it would have. They lived in a place where there was a great deal of Jewish persecution against them, and they were shut out of the Jewish synagogues. 
And the Jewish people who did not believe that Jesus was the true Messiah thought that these Christians were crazy and that there was no way that they were included in the people of God. And Jesus here is reminding them that those Jewish leaders in the community don't hold the keys of David. They don't hold the keys of the kingdom of God. And they don't decide who gets let in and who doesn't. Jesus Christ does. He is in charge of the kingdom of heaven. He is in charge of his church. So we see Jesus in the right light, and we're ready to listen to him well. We don't just want to celebrate Jesus, and we don't just want to remember Jesus. We want to worship him because he is holy, and we want to trust him because he is true above all else. So we want to listen well, and we have an opportunity to do that today as we read on in verse 8, and we'll listen in on what he says to this church in Philadelphia. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. There's a lot in that verse, but what I want to draw your attention to is there toward the second half of it. He says, I know you have but little power. That means they had little stature in the community. They had little influence. This was no megachurch. They didn't have an impressively sized congregation. They didn't have a big state-of-the-art building. They didn't have a media ministry. You wouldn't have seen stickers on the back of cars all around town with their church logo on it. They had little power. And what's interesting to me about that, even though they had this small footprint, This is not part of Jesus' correction. This is part of his commendation. As we've read these letters, you've noticed that he has commended something good about each of these churches, and then he's corrected something in each of these churches. Well, this is not part of a correction. He's just acknowledging the truth of the fact that you guys are little. You guys are small. You don't have a lot of power. You're not impressive. But he's not putting it out there as if that's a problem. He's stating it as an an important truth about the church that highlights what's good about the commendation. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So yes, they're small. Yes, they're not powerful. They may be seen as insignificant where they're located, but they're faithful. And so they are pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. They are faithful. Specifically, they have kept Jesus' word. That means they're living by Jesus' word. They're living by the Bible. If the Bible says it's true, they are believing it. If the Bible commands it, they are obeying it. If the Bible warns against it, they are heeding that warning. Simple, everyday faithfulness. They're keeping the word, and that is pleasing Jesus, even though they're not big and powerful. The other thing they're doing is they are not denying Jesus' name. They're acknowledging Jesus' name. They are publicly being Christians in a community that was persecuting them for it, where it was unpopular. They were still publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, and that pleases Jesus, even though they weren't big, even though they weren't powerful. This was a faithful church that was pleasing Jesus. Small but faithful churches 
can please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a helpful reminder, I think, for us in the American church. Small churches can still please the Lord Jesus Christ if they'll be faithful, because faithfulness is what marks success in his eyes. Not size, not seeming power, not influence, not branding, none of those things. Faithfulness. Everyday Christian faithfulness. I've heard a question asked, I don't know if I read it in a book or where, but I've heard it multiple times, that churches should ask of themselves, if your church disappeared from your community, would your community miss it? So the idea is we as Doolin's Grove would ask, if Doolin's Grove just ceased to exist for some reason, would our community around here miss us? And it's supposed to reveal if you're a healthy church or not. But I think it's a flawed question. I don't think it's actually a biblical question to ask. I think a much better question is, are we being faithful? Because there's no guarantee that a faithful church would be missed by their community if they disappeared. There's no guarantee that if we're faithful, we'll grow big. There's no guarantee that if we're faithful, we'll grow powerful. There's no guarantee that if we're faithful, our community will appreciate us. There's no guarantee that if we're faithful, we'll have a good reputation in the community. At different times and different places, God is doing different things, and sometimes his churches are not appreciated. Sometimes they're hated. Sometimes they're despised. Sometimes they're mocked. Sometimes they're just ignored and seen as old-fashioned or irrelevant. You just really can't base how we're doing as a church on what anybody else thinks of us but Jesus Christ. And what he is looking for is faithfulness, keeping his word, living by his word in the practical details of our daily lives, acknowledging his name, not denying his name when we're with our unbelieving family members or when we're at school and it's not seen as popular or cool, or when we're at work and it might actually change our boss's perception of us in some way that could hinder our career. That's what he values. Faithfulness, and any size church can do that. This is certainly not a, an anti-large church passage. If a big church is faithful to Jesus, that pleases Jesus. If a little church is faithful to Jesus, that pleases Jesus. We have some little churches in our little denomination. Like, we have some single-digit churches. And we'll wonder, maybe we should just shut that thing down. I mean, there are only nine, eight people there. But that's not how Jesus is thinking about it. Jesus might be thinking... Those eight or nine people are faithful. They're keeping my word, and they're not denying my name in a culture that is uh, increasingly resistant to it. And so that church may please Jesus more than a 9,000-member church if that 9,000-member church is not being faithful, is not keeping his word, and is denying his name. And that does happen. So as a church, we want to honor and please our Lord and Savior Jesus at Christmas time. It's so simple. What he wants from us is just the simple everyday faithfulness of keeping his word, not denying his name, acknowledging his name. It pleases him when you keep his word in how you go about your work, the vocation he's placed you in. You operating as a Christian there with Christian principles in mind of honesty and integrity and generosity and service, and that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. You're keeping his word there. You operating within your families based on God's word, 
Husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church, self-sacrificially. Wives loving their husbands like the church loves Christ, with radical trust. That pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. However that works itself out in your day-to-day interactions. Parents bringing their children up in the discipline and correction of the Lord. Children honoring their mother and father. This pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. Your decisions about your finances, your your daily generosity and how you treat people out there in the world. All of that is hugely important. You cannot bypass it. You cannot please Jesus without it. It wouldn't matter if if we as a church just exploded and became just the biggest deal. Stephen Furtick calling me on the phone asking for advice. Mega church. But if we're not being faithful to Jesus, that would not please him in any way. But we can please Jesus. I believe we are pleasing Jesus. I look around and I see each of you. I know your lives. I know what's going on with you. I see so many faithful saints here. And so I really, this isn't like a do better sermon. This is a, you're doing well. You're pleasing the Lord Jesus in your everyday faithfulness. Keep it up. Keep going. He loves it. Jesus basically is saying to this weak but faithful church in Philadelphia, just stay the course, keep on keeping my word, keep on acknowledging my name, and I'll take care of the other stuff. For example, Jesus promises next that he'll vindicate them before those who are persecuting them. We read on in verse 9. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You have to imagine this little kind of bullied, pushed around church, batch of Christians who had little power, little standing. You'd have to imagine they were tempted to fight back at some point. You'd have to imagine they were tempted to argue with these Jewish people that were persecuting them. You have to imagine they were tempted to go on a social media rant. You have to imagine they were tempted to forward those mean memes about the Jews that were persecuting them. And Jesus says, just don't worry about any of that. You don't have to vindicate yourself. Just keep my word and acknowledge my name. I'm going to take care of all that. You don't have to do that. I'm going to vindicate you. And then next he says, I'm going to protect you. As we read on in verse 10. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is coming back. And the Bible indicates that there will be times of great trials preceding and associated with his return. Now here he's saying that when those trials come, he will protect his church, including the weak little churches. He's going to protect them. And I think an important idea for us to grasp here as we remember his birth and Christmas is that he didn't live and die and then leave us alone like orphans to fend for ourselves. He's coming back. He's going to vindicate us. He's going to protect us when he comes back, when that hour of trial comes. Some people think this means that he's going to remove his people from the hour of trial. Others think that he just means he's going to protect them within to endure the hour of trial. Either way, you don't need to worry. He's going to protect you. 
He's going to protect his churches during the hour of trial. And either way, what's clear is that he is coming back. He's coming again. Verse 11 states it as plain as day. Verse 11, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We call this season as a church Advent. That word Advent means coming or arrival. And we call it that because we were remembering Jesus' first Advent, his first coming, his first arrival. But we also want to look forward and remember that he's coming again. There'll be a second Advent. He is coming back. And really, we live more in the shadow of that Advent than we do the Christmas Advent. If you read through Scripture, there is more to indicate that we should be thinking about his second coming than there is that we should be thinking about his first coming. We know the history of it, and it's important, and it builds out our understanding of who he is. But often we're told to live in light of the second Advent, the fact that he is coming back, and he could come back any moment. And we are to live as though he's coming back soon, with our eyes on the horizon thinking maybe today he's coming back. Think of how that would change your decision-making if you thought he might be coming back within the next 15 minutes. That's how we're supposed to live as Christians. Charles Dickens said that he wants to live every day as if it's Christmas. I don't, remember if he, I don't know if he said that of himself or he put that into the mouths of one of his characters in a Christmas carol, carol or what. But as Christians, we want to live every day in light of the second advent as well as the first. I must wonder if we should design a whole new holiday season now that Christmas has been so deeply commercialized and secularized. I wonder if we should invent a whole new season that would start in January or February completely focused on the second advent. Instead of putting trees up in our living room, we put telescopes up there to watch the skies. And instead of getting gifts for everybody, we just evangelize like crazy. It's actually... I put it in here as an illustration, but the more I thought about it, I thought that's actually not a really, not a bad idea. Y'all work on that. Because Jesus is coming soon, he wants us to hold fast what you have, he says in verse 11. Hold fast to what you have. Hang on to what you have. You have this open door that no one can close. You have in Jesus Christ secure reconciliation with God citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, eternity with him, all based on his grace and mercy. Hold on to that and keep his word and hold on to his name and don't relinquish it and don't let go of it. He says, so that no one would take your crown, that no one may seize your crown. That's language of like an athletic competition. And the idea is that there, there is resistance to doing this. It's not going to happen if we just naturally go with the flow. The flow of this world is away from Jesus and not toward Jesus. So we have to make an effort to resist and to overcome all the distractions, all the temptations, the busyness. Really, the application is just so plain from this passage. It's just keep going. Keep praying. Keep reading your Bible. Keep coming to church, even on a rainy Sunday like this. Keep repenting when God reveals sin in your life. Keep learning more about God 
keep growing in how you are aligning your life with Scripture. It's not going to look like great leap forward surges. It's going to look like daily steps, one foot in front of the other spiritually, faithfully moving forward as Christians. Keep at it. It pleases Jesus Christ. If we will hold fast to what we have, we will conquer all that works against us, and we will receive rewards that I don't think we can fully even understand. Let's read on into verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now here we get into the more mysterious aspects of the passage. Each of these letters has a more mysterious aspect to it. First he says, those who conquer, those who stand strong and hold fast and endure patiently and stay faithful, these conquerors, uh, it says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. They lived in an area of the world that was known for mighty earthquakes that often destroyed their buildings and made people have to, like refugees, move out away from the cities to find some shelter. So this would have meant a lot to them. This would have represented to them strength and stability and permanence in relationship with God. Eternity in God's presence, unshakable, nothing could touch it. And then he goes on to talk about these names. He says, I write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Three names he says he's going to write on the conqueror. I'm pretty sure, based on my study, that this simply means you will be forever identified with God as God's own. And we're, we are always putting names on ourselves. This really isn't a mystical or new concept. We're always putting names on ourselves. We're, we're deciding what brands to wear that we want to be associated with. Or people are getting tattooed with things they want to be associated with. Or people are putting bumper stickers on their cars with the names of things they want to be associated with. We have this human longing to be associated with things. Now, this has always been somewhat clear to me because I have someone very close to me who at Christmas time, if you got this individual a sweatshirt or sweatpants or something that had a brand on it, he would not accept the gift. He says, I'm, they're not paying me to walk around as a billboard for their brand, so I'm not wearing it. They would only wear unmarked clothes. So uh, that, I've, I've known that concept for a while. Like, why do we wear these companies' names all over our clothes? Why do we associate with these things? Why are some brands the brands to put on yourself and other brands not when you're in school? I don't know, I'm not all that smart with all those things, but I do think there's some human desire to be associated with the right things. And so we like to have names put on us in that way. If it's not visible, it's more ideological. The Jews wanted to be known as Jews. The Gentiles were known as Gentiles. In our own day, some want to be known as Republicans, some want to be known as Democrats, some want to be known as conservatives, some want to be known as, as progressives. And there's probably all kinds of other labels that people like and put on themselves that I'm not aware of since I've withdrawn from social media. But whatever that desire is deep down in the human condition to be associated with the right things, 
will only fully and finally be answered here. When Jesus Christ puts the name of God on his people once and for all, and the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem that will descend from heaven, this is, this is what awaits us. This is our true citizenship. And his own new name that we don't, nobody even knows is some new glory about Jesus that will unfold that we don't even know yet will be stamped on us. We will be forever associated with the right thing finally. God himself through Jesus Christ. Even the weakest church will have these names imprinted upon them. Even the smallest church, if faithful, will have these names pressed upon them. And so we end with verse 13 where we've ended all these letters. They all end in this way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. So we start We end where we started. We want to listen well. That's the best way to worship and trust in Jesus. Listen well. Respond well. You know that feeling you get when you know you've got a good gift for someone that's important to you? You've whiffed it in the past and gotten bad gifts, but this time you know for sure you've thought of a good gift. It's wrapped. It's under the tree. You can't wait till Christmas morning to give them this good gift. Well, we know for sure what Jesus likes. We can absolutely knock it out of the park and please our Savior and Lord. All he wants from us is everyday faithfulness. He wants us to keep his word. He wants us to acknowledge his name. He wants us to hold fast to what we have until he comes. He is coming again. And when he comes, we'll have all these rewards that we can't even wrap our minds around. Eternity secured with God, forever marked as God's own. We have so much to rejoice in this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are a good God. He is a good Savior, a good Lord, the only Savior, the only Lord. We together now with one heart and one mind, we rededicate ourselves to the everyday faithfulness that pleases him. We're so grateful that you saved us by your mercy and your grace through faith in Jesus, and now we know we get to live this way and we want to. Help us to keep your word. Help us to acknowledge the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to hold fast to everything that you've given us until he returns. In Jesus' name, amen.